All right, if you uh, remember to take your Bible with you this morning, I'd like you to turn to uh, the book of 2 Timothy. In the, it's in the New Testament, 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3. I'm going to begin reading at verse 10. I'm going to read to the uh, end of the chapter. If you don't have a Bible with you, you're going to see words on the screen above my head and the, uh, the Bible passage that I'm going to be reading in just a moment will be there as well as other passages that I'm going to be referring to this morning. Uh, this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to begin about a six-week series on mission. And we're going to be looking at two basic parts of this series on mission. We're going to be looking at God as a missionary God. And we are going to be taking a look at you and also me as a missionary people. Because when you look at the Bible, the two are interconnected. They're actually fused together. And I'm going to be explaining that over the six weeks. And so what we're going to do is the first three weeks... What I'm going to do is, well, let me begin with the second three weeks, the, sec the, the, the second part of this series, the last three weeks, we're going to be considering together the more practical side or dimension of mission and evangelism, but what I want to do for the next three weeks is set forth something that many Christians don't really dive into much, and that is a biblical, theological rationale for mission. Because when you take a look at the Bible, um, I will submit to you that you really cannot properly understand this book and you cannot interpret this book without understanding the mission of God and your participation and mine in the mission of God. And we see this from the very first book of the Bible all the way to the last book of the Bible. And I hope to demonstrate that for us over the next three weeks. And, and just simply also to say this, and I want you to kind of uh, prepare yourself for this. Um, the, the first three weeks of this mission series, you're not going to be coming away from each sermon going, wow, you know, I mean, my heart was so touched and I was so comforted by this or that. Hopefully you're comforted in some way, but that's not the type of sermons that I'm going to be preaching over the next three weeks. They're going to be more kind of a, a, a what we call didactic sermons or more teaching-based sermons so that you and I understand from this book the biblical theological rationale for God as a missionary God and you and I as a missionary people. We need to understand that. So first two sermons are on mission from the Old Testament perspective, and then the third sermon is going to be on uh, a New Testament perspective on mission. So with that in mind, now I want to draw your attention to 2 Timothy chapter 3. I want to begin reading at verse 10. You, however, uh, you, however and now this is the, um, the Apostle Paul addressing a young pastor named Timothy. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me in Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you... Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood 
you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, verse 16 especially, which is going to be a, a jump-off point for the sermon this morning. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof and correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Kids, I want you to look up here. And I want you to take a look at this book. You know that a, a pastor who is true to his calling always speaks a message, call it a sermon, from this book. And we read from this book that all of Scripture, we call this the Scripture, the sacred writings, all Scripture is breathed out by God. Or maybe you might have, a, some of you might have a translation here this morning. Translation of the Bible says all Scripture is inspired by God. So, what are we really saying when we say that the Bible is inspired? I mean, maybe more broadly speaking, how should we define this book? And, you know, when you, when you consider this book and you take into consideration what Bible teachers and theologians have said about this book, you'll see that this book is characterized by these things. This book is holy, this book is inspired, this book is infallible, and this book is inerrant. Now kids, these are, these are all very kind of big words, and when you go through your catechism classes here, where we formally train you in the Christian faith, you're going to learn about these terms. So what are we saying when we say that this book is holy? In fact, my book here says holy Bible. What do we mean that it's holy? We mean this book is set apart from all other books, which raises the question, how is this book set apart from all other writings that we find in human history, from all other books? And we say, well, this book stands in contrast to all other books because it is inspired. That, is, that means it is, in the translation that I read this morning, it is God-breathed, or literally expired, breathed out. And when it says that, it's simply underscoring to us that this book is of divine origin, although God used humans, human instrumentality, in order to write down what God wanted them to write through the working of his Holy Spirit. Because this book is inspired, we also say that it's infallible, that it's inerrant. What do we mean by that? We're saying because this book is of divine origin, it cannot err. It does not err in what it says about all things. Why do I bring that out? Because this is the book by which we're going to understand God as a missionary God and you and I as a missionary people. And the more that you become familiar with this book, what you see from beginning and the end is this, that God is on a mission. God is on a mission to save, to redeem, to restore, to give life to a fallen and a broken world. And as you study this book very carefully, again from beginning to end, you're going to see that God himself has called us to participate in that mission. Listen to these words from Jesus, where Jesus said in John 20, verse 21, Jesus said to his disciples, and by extension he's saying to you and me as well, he's saying, as the Father has sent me into the world, now, as my representatives, I'm sending you out 
to the world. Not to stay away from the world and your responsibility to the world, but to dive in and bear my message to the world. And what you see finally in this book when you take it seriously, and that mission that you and I have, it is never, and I want you to listen very carefully to this, because a number of you here are members at Pathway, but you're from other churches as well, different kinds of churches perhaps, or maybe you're not even part of a church at all, but here's the thing. This mission that God has put into our hands to be instruments in the Redeemer's hands of salvation and restoration for a broken world. This is never in any local church just to be a tack on, to be an addendum or an attachment to what the church does, but it has to be at the very center of what the church is all about, every local church. This mission that we have is at the very center, should be at the very center of who we are, it should be at the very center of our identity and our purpose. And if it's not, we're not carrying fully out the will of the Lord. So, our identity and purpose is the mission of God. We'll be a blessing to each other. Above all, we're to bless the Lord and give Him glory. And as we do, we're also at the very heart of our identity to bear God's mission to the world. By the way, as I noted, that very mission of God and our participation in it stands, again, at the very center of the book. And I want to take some time over the next number of weeks to help understand the, the, the ongoing flow of the Bible and see how that's going to be explicated or explained for us. Okay, So let's, let's begin where the Bible begins at the very, very uh, beginning. Bearing in mind, right, the Bible is not first and foremost a collection of doctrine or morals or therapy for the soul, but it's a story. It's a story of God's mission. So that story begins in Genesis, Genesis 1, verse 1. The very first words that we read in the Bible are these, in the beginning, and you cannot understand the Christian faith without this, because it sets forth the creator-creature distinction. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So God created the heavens and the earth, and as part of his creative activity, God created human beings. He created the world in six days, he rested on the seventh, and on that sixth day, God created human beings as the crown of his creative activity. The first human beings being Adam and Eve. And God placed Adam and Eve in a beautiful garden. Now, when you think of a garden, don't think of maybe uh, the back of your house and this little plot of land you have, maybe you grow this and that. When you think of a garden, think more like Manning, State, uh, Manning Park, right? It's a large, large park, right? And Adam and Eve were part of this beautiful garden that God had created for them. So in the beginning, everything was beautiful, Adam and Eve walked and talked with God. They had this intimate relationship with God. But you see, in the garden, there was a competitor. One who stood opposed to God. He is a fallen angel whom the Bible calls Satan. People kind of chuckle about Satan today, you know. Oh, the devil, right? Where's the suit? He's got these horns, and he's red, and he's got a tail, and he's got a pitchfork. And Satan is real. The devil is real. And what's the intent of the devil? To break down what God has created. To undermine it. 
to uh, destroy it, to destroy the world that God made and to destroy human beings. So what did this instigator, the devil, do? In the form of serpent, he came to Eve in order to test her. For God said, of all the trees of the garden you may eat, but that tree in the middle of the garden you may not eat of it, because the day you eat of it, oh, you shall surely die. The devil came to Eve and said, "Uh uh-uh, you're not going to die. You're not going to die, and he sowed a number of lies. Eve bought into the lies, and she partook of the fruit, and she gave some of the fruit to her husband, Adam. And what happened after that? Adam and Eve, and the world was plunged into what the Bible calls a little three-letter word, but has wrecked everything. It's called sin. And Adam and Eve sinned against God. They rebelled against God, and sin had devastating devastating consequences. It turned the world topsy-turvy. And what sin did, it broke Adam and Eve's relationship with each other. Most importantly, it broke their relationship with God and it broke their relationship with the world that God created. In fact, the whole world took on the effects of the sin and the rebellion of Adam and Eve and thorns and thistles grew in our garden whereas before there was none of them. So sin, rebellion just changed everything Everything in tones of white took on tones of gray and black. And the creation was scarred and marred. And you know, God had every right just to say, you know what? That's not the way I created it. So what I'm going to do, Adam me, I'm going to destroy you and I'm going to destroy the creation and I'm going to begin completely anew. Because what Adam and Eve did, and sometimes you hear about this, right? You have these art studios, right? You have these very expensive paintings. And sometimes you have protesters come in protesting whatever, right? And they slash the painting or they throw white paint at the painting. And that's what Adam and Eve did. They just, they, they just marred the painting and they slashed at it. And, and God looked at that. And, and rather than saying as the great artist, you know what? Forget the painting. You know, he tosses it in the garbage and I'm going to begin anew. What God said is, as the great artist, what I'm going to do is I'm going to begin to restore that. I'm going to fix it. You say, how did God do that? God said, you know what? What I'm going to do is one day, one day, I'm going to send a deliverer, a restorer, a rescuer in the world. And what he's going to do is he's going to save this fallen world. He's going to redeem it and he's going to restore it and he's going to renew it, and in the end, good's going to triumph over evil. I want you to think about that. There's a beautiful text that we find in the Garden of Eden. If you put that first one up there, it's Genesis 3, verse 15. I want you to take a look at that. Here we read this, and the Lord God said to the serpent, and now he's going to utter a curse upon the serpent because he led Adam and Eve into sin. And brought marring and scarring upon the creation. He says to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And then he says these very important words. I'm going to place enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring, that is your children and her children. He will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. You know what this is called in the Bible? or by theologians, I should say, they call it, it's a technical term, the Proto-Evangelium, which means the first promise of the good news of the rescuer to come. And you say, how's that good news? Well, it's good news, but it's kind of in veiled language. Here's what it means. 
The Lord God is saying, you know what? Serpent and Eve, you used to be friends before, but serpent, you turned against Eve. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to create hostility between you, serpent, and Eve, and between your children and her children, which represent the individuals who are, off, are apart from Jesus and those who are in Jesus, those who know him and those who reject him. And we find those two lines of individuals even in the world today. And what the Lord God says is, you know what, serpent and the children of the serpent, as we go on through history, what we're going to find is that you are going to strike at the heel of the woman's children and even of the Messiah whom we call Jesus to come in time. You're going to be striking, striking, just like having moved from Arizona, we find rattlesnakes in the desert. And you're walking through, beware. Where do they strike? Do they strike your head? They jump up from the ground? No. What they do is they strike at your heel in order to inject the poison. And that's what you're going to try to do to God's people and the Messiah Jesus throughout history. But here's the thing. I want you to notice closely the wording there. It's a third person singular. He. Though you strike at him, he will crush your head. Kids, I don't know if you've ever seen a snake. Nobody likes snakes, really. But you know what? A snake can bite you and you can live. You can live. But you go up to a snake and you have the opportunity to put your foot on the head of that snake. You're going to kill that snake if you press down hard enough. You can put your foot on the tail of the snake or the body of the snake. Well, it's probably going to hurt the snake somewhat, but you're probably not going to kill it. But you put that foot on the head of the snake and that snake is going to be destroyed. So what is that mother promise saying? The mother promise is saying this. God's people are going to be in this world, and from God's people, this rescuer one day is going to come, and he is going to triumph over evil, and he's going to bring redemption and rescue and blessing, not only to his people, but the entire world. Kids, do you hear this? It's a drum roll. It's a drum beat. And what you find is the Old Testament moves on. You hear that drumbeat of the promise of God as he waits to bring the Messiah, Jesus, the rescuer in the world. It grows louder and louder. Until finally Jesus comes. But here's the thing. When you read this book in the Old Testament, what you find is that the drumbeat is very, very faint at first. But as it goes on, it grows louder and louder and louder. Bring in the person of Abraham. You know, if you're new to the Bible, you're not going to know who Abraham is, but you cannot understand the first two-thirds of this Bible. In fact, the whole of the Bible without understanding Abraham and the descendants of Abraham. So let me talk about Abraham for a moment. Abraham was a man, I don't know if you know this, but Abraham was a man who, um, he didn't grow up in a believing family. He, he grew up in spiritual darkness. But one day God came to Abraham, not because Abraham thought, you know what, I think I would like a relationship with God. No, God in his divine favor and love came to Abraham. He said, Abraham, I'm going to enter into a covenant with you. That's, think of covenant as marriage bond, a bond of friendship and love. And God said to Abraham, Abraham, as part of this relationship, this covenant, I'm going to promise you these things. I'm going to promise you a land that you and your descendants are going to take over one day because you don't have a land right now. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you and your wife Sarah 
both of them old at this time and never able to have kids. But God says, nonetheless, I'm going to cause your wife to get pregnant and she's going to have a child, the child of promise. And then this child's going to have other children and, and God says to Abraham, what I'm going to do, and this is my promise to you, that even though you don't have kids now, I'm going to give you so many descendants that they're going to be like the stars of heaven and like the sands of the seashore. And your descendants one day are going to inherit this land and your descendants are going to live there and from there in that land, your descendants are going to bring my saving and restoring blessings to the world and ultimately bring the Messiah, Jesus, into the world for the salvation and restoring of the world. Listen to this. If you put the next passage on from Genesis chapter 12, take a look at that if you would. And the Lord God said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house now to the land I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Now notice this final sentence. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. And in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Now listen to this. God comes to Abraham and he says, I have chosen you. And I'm entering into covenant, into this relationship with you, and not only with you, but your descendants, with those who will make up a great nation one day. And the reason why I'm doing that, not just because I'm a gracious God, but so that you will be instruments in my hands to bring a blessing to the world. Ultimately, Abraham, it's your descendants who are going to bring this Messiah, Jesus, this deliverer, into the world. I mean, that is a phenomenal thing. What God is promising Abraham. You know, here's the thing. Always remember this, and you're going to see this always throughout this series. Kids, listen. When God makes a promise, does he ever break it? God never breaks a promise. Why? Because he's God. God's not a liar. God can't sin. So always remember this, whenever God makes a promise to you, or a promise in the Bible to you, to us, the thing is, God always fulfills that promise. It may not be right away, but eventually he fulfills that promise. And that's what he's going to do in making his people a blessing to the world and bringing Jesus into the world as well. So, the question is, okay, descendants of Abraham, as you move on in history, who do they become? Who are the children of Abraham? We call them Israel. And again, when you look at the first two-thirds of the Bible, in fact, again, the whole of the Bible, you cannot understand this book without understanding the descendants of Abraham, Israel. And God says to the descendants of Abraham, in fulfillment of the promise that he made to Abraham, says, you know what? I've gathered you to myself as a great nation, not just so that you may enjoy the blessings that I give to you, but so that you might bring blessing to the world. See, God, God always has his sights set beyond his people to the world, to the world, to the world. So the question is, how is Israel going to be a blessing to the world? And God says, two means primarily. You're going to be a blessing to the world by my calling you to be priests. Sounds weird, but I'll explain that. And also, I'm going to bring blessing to the world by having you be a holy, attractive people.
to the world. Now, with that in mind, I want to move quickly. Go to the book of Exodus, the next one. All right, look at those words if you would. Now, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be, says the Lord to his people, my treasured possession among all the peoples on the earth. For all the earth is mine, and you will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Let me explain to this. What does God call his people? And by the way, this is confirmed to us in the New Testament. God calls us the same thing. God says, you're my special possession. I place my love upon you, and I draw you to myself. You're special. How are we special? Because when you look at the Bible, God says to his people on a number of occasions, he says, you know, you got all these nations around the world, but of all the nations, I have placed my heart's affection and love and favor upon you. And that's not because you're better than they are. It's not because you're more moral than they are. It's not because you're more numerous than they are. Mm -mm. It's because it's my love and good pleasure to do so. So I chose you among all the people. You're my special possession. I'm electing you. I'm choosing you among all the nations. All right. And God says, I'm choosing you to be, according to this passage, a kingdom of priests. Now, what does that mean? You know, when you take a look at the Bible, you had a central place of worship in the Bible. First of all, it was called the tabernacle, which then came to a more permanent place called the, the temple. And priests would work in that temple. And priests were individuals whom God chose for the special calling of being go-betweens or mediators between God and the people. So what the priests did is they brought something of God to the people, and they brought something of the people to God. So what did the priests do in bringing something of God to the people? Well, the priests brought God's law to the people. And the law contains the will of God. Because God says, I've covenanted with you, I've chosen you, and I want you to know who I am. And I want you to know how I want you to live as a people who are faithful and obedient and embrace that Messiah Jesus to come. So the priests bring something of God to the people, the nation of Israel, but the priests also bring something of the people of Israel to God. What is that? Well, they offer sacrifices for the forgiveness of the sins of the people, and those sacrifices we call atoning sacrifices that cover the sin of God's people so that they may remain in a living and an and accepted relationship with God. But also what the priests did is they did this. They prayed. They prayed. They were intercessors. And they would pray for the people of God. And the prayers of the people would come through the priest to God. So he brought something of God to the people and something of the people to God. But here's the thing. Look carefully at the language of that passage from Exodus. He says, God says to his people, I call you a kingdom of priests. So what is he saying? This is very important. He's saying the priesthood is a very special office a special calling, but in a general sense, God says, you're all priests. You're all priests. So how are the people of God priests? Well, just as the priesthood brought something of God to the people and something of the people to God, as priests, God's people, and this is part of our calling as well, is for us to bring as mediators or go-betweens, we are to bring something of God to the nations so that the nations might be drawn to God. Which, if you think about it, how do we carry out this priestly calling that we have? And God says, you know how you do that? By being a contrast people. 
uh, being a holy people. Holy means set apart. I've set you apart from the nations. Why? So you can look like a weird people? No. So that you may look like an attractive people. So people will look at you as a contrast people, as a countercultural people, take notice of you and say, huh, there's something beautiful there. There's something attractive there. And so that the nations here and there and people within the nations might be drawn, might be drawn to God and drawn to the people of God. You think about that. It's quite a responsibility that Israel had. It's quite a responsibility that we have as well. You know, again, different not for being weird, but different for being uh, something beautiful and attractive. You know, it's like, if I may give you a little breather here, it's like, it's like, a, it's like a girl, say a 16-year-old girl who moves from one hometown to, to a, maybe a different province in a different town, and she starts going to the high school there, and, and the kids in the school realize, you know what, you're not from our side of town. And you're different. And this girl comes in, and she's not like the other girls. She's not dressed like the other girls. She's not cake doesn't have the you know caked on makeup like all the other girls. She didn't act like the other girls. She didn't talk like the other girls. But here's the interesting thing. The guys notice her. They notice her because she's different, but also because she's so different, not just from the girls, but from the culture as a whole. There's something different. There's something pure. There's something beautiful about her. I tell you what, the guys notice her, and they are attracted to her, not all the other girls. It's like Israel. Different. Different among the nations. But not different, strange, not different, ugly, but different, beautiful. They attract the nations. So that when you, when you read the first two-thirds of the book of, a, of the Bible, what you see interestingly is that Israel starts attracting as a light, like a moth is, is drawn to a light, so too individuals throughout the nations are actually, they're actually drawn to, to the God of Israel and to the community of Israel. For instance, you find these stories like, um, and maybe you don't know the background of these if you're new here, but you have a man named Naaman the Syrian. He's not from Israel, he's from Syria. He's a leper, and yet he's healed by one of the prophets of Israel. He's restored. Or you think of someone like the widow of Zarephath, Zarephath not being a part of Israel, and this is a woman who also was touched through the healing of a son. Her son was restored. Or you think of, well, how about this? Rahab the prostitute. Remember her in the book of the, the opening chapters of, of, of Joshua where the people are, the descendants of Abraham are going into the, the land that God promised them and they're, they're ready to conquer it. And it's, it's Rahab the prostitute who a Canaanite does not align herself with the tribe of the Canaanites in the land, but what she does is she identifies with the people of Israel. A prostitute, and she's received in. Or perhaps one of the most beautiful examples is a woman named Ruth, the Moabitess from Moab. Not Israel, part of the nations. And, and Ruth at one point in her life said, this is what I'm going to do 
I'm going to leave my land. I'm going to leave my people. I'm going to leave my culture. I'm going to leave my religion. And she says to her mother-in-law, Naomi, an Israelite, she said, Naomi, wherever you go, I'm going to go. And you know what? Your land is going to be my land. Your God is going to be my God. And your people are going to be my people. See the transition? A Canaanite, a Moabitess, a woman from Zarephath, a Syrian. So here and there, bit by bit, people are attaching themselves to the people of God and to the God of Israel. We've been flying a helicopter this morning, haven't we? All of the Old Testament. But I want us to understand the flow of the missional story. There's so much more that could be said. But I want to say this again. God's saving and restorative design for the world was always intended to be mediated, flow through the people of God. They were called to bless God and bless each other, and they were also called to bless the world through their word and their witness. Now you think about that. By the way, that applies to us as well. That's, that's, that's a big responsibility, isn't it? I mean, it's a huge task. And Israel understood that. And Israel said, you know what? Uh, Lord, we, we cannot do that in, in our own strength. We need your help and we need your blessing. So I want to leave you with this passage from the great missionary. You know what the great missionary psalm of the Psalter is? A lot of us love the Psalms. 150 Psalms. What's that one missionary psalm of the Psalter? There's a lot of references to the nations in the Psalms, but there's one psalm that's particularly beautiful from beginning to end, revolves around mission. Psalm 67. If you put that up there, please. Look at these words. Now remember, Israel's saying this is a huge responsibility. We can't do it on our own. We need the blessing of God. So look at their appeal. Their appeal is this, oh, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us so that your way may be known on the earth, O Lord, and your saving power among the nations. Let the peoples, now when the plural peoples is used in the Bible, it's most often referenced to the nations. Let the nations, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. So you know what the psalmist is really crying out for? He's saying this, Lord, even view it in terms of a prayer. And how often is this our prayer? Lord, we need your blessing. Bless us so that we in turn may not just revel in those blessings, but we may be a blessing then and a light to the nations of the world so that in the nations receiving the light of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, they in turn may be a blessing for you, O oh God, for as the great John Piper put it, the reason why God calls the nations and the reason why there's a mission to the nations is because the nations right now are not worshipers of God. We bring the gospel to them so that the nations may be drawn into the church of Jesus Christ and do what God created them to do, which is what? Worship the Lord. Worship the Lord. Hmm. Now, when you read the Bible... Did Israel fulfill her task? Sadly not, oftentimes. 
Israel is supposed to be a light to the nations and a holy people. And most often they turned their back on God. They broke covenant with God. They were an unholy people. And again, time and time again, God had every right to say, you know what? I, I'm done with you people. In fact, he comes very close. But always, always for the sake of the promise, God says, I'm not going to do that. Why? Because I'm going to send my son into the world and I will always have a people. Even if they're a small remnant, I will always have a people that according to my promise will be a light to the nations. So, I'll leave you with this. In our circles, we like to talk about the doctrine of election. What do we mean by election? We mean we talk about God in his grace choosing for himself a people Totally undeserving, totally unworthy, and yet God stoops as it were and he spills out his grace and his mercy upon them and in Jesus Christ he draws them to himself. Election. We also like to talk about the word covenant, don't we? How God covenants with his people and he enters into this formal bond of friendship and love with his people involving a number of wonderful, beautiful promises. Election. And covenant. And oftentimes, I think in our circles, what we do, and a lot of churches do this, we think about election, we think about covenant, and we kind of go, oh man, that is so beautiful. And to think that the Lord would elect me and covenant with me, and oh, that is such a beautiful privilege. And it is. But there are many times where people kind of cut it off right there. And when you look at the Bible from the flow of Genesis to Revelation, God says, listen, my people, I elect you and I covenant with you not just because I love you, but because I got work for you to do. I covenant with you and I elect you for the sake not only of privilege, but also responsibility. The responsibility to take my word and my mission that I have given to you for the salvation and the restoration of the nations, I've given you that so that my word may go forth, so that my knowledge may cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, and so that peoples, nations, might be drawn in. They might submit to Jesus Christ and find life and human flourishing in him. That's our identity. That's our purpose, and it's the identity and purpose of every local church. And may God bless us with that heart's desire say, Lord, I'm a privileged person, but I've also called the responsibility as an individual and as a church. Lord, bless us so that in turn, we may bless the nations and this city so that the people of the city may in turn be a blessing to you. May God give us that heart. We're going to explore that more in the weeks to come. Join me in prayer, if you would. Oh, Father, the Bible's such a rich book. Indeed it is. A beautiful story, Lord, of your heart and your desire, O oh Lord, through your people to bring in the nations. Oh God, we confess here this morning that the Bible talks very frequently about judgment, about your wrath, about your justice, about your obligation to punish evil. God, help us to understand that, that the nations, O oh God, stand under your judgment until the gospel comes out to them and you, by your electing grace, through the instrumentality of your people, draw them into the kingdom of God. 
bringing them out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of your light. Oh, Lord, with that kind of burden of our hearts, give us the desire, Lord, not only to walk with Jesus ourselves, but to be that voice to the nations, a soothing voice as ambassadors of Christ who say, oh, there is rest. There is rest for the restless soul. God, increasingly give us that burden, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.